number of years ago, I was teaching uh, at a Bible conference in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And every time during my sessions, when I would be teaching, there was a man sitting on the front row with a puzzled look on his face. I asked somebody who he was, and they said he's a former missionary. His wife was really sick, and he had to come back home to the States, and he has a practice here. But he sat there, his head cocked, and when the conference was over, he came up to me and he said, Dr. Brown, all my life, I've heard preachers and missionaries say they were sinners. And you're the only one I ever believed. <laughs> I, thought, I thought about that when I was asked to teach on the 51st Psalm, and the Psalm of Failure, but it's a lot worse than that. To call this a psalm of failure is like saying the sinking of the Titanic was a boat accident. We're going to see some really bad stuff in some really famous people this morning. But I thought about what that doctor said, and when they asked me to teach on the 51st Psalm, the guy said, that's because you focus on grace so well. Translation, you're the biggest sinner that we know. <laughs> and if somebody can teach on this psalm with insight, it will be you. You remember, and I love the paraphrase earlier, you, you remember that uh, David not just failed, he made an obscene gesture in the face of God. Abusive? Some scholars have suggested that what he did was rape, murderer, and he would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for Nathan. And then when God came and he was broken, and in the dirt, he wrote these words in this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you 
teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Cleanse me. Give me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. They will in you delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. No oh my. We'll dig in a minute, but let me go down a couple of side roads. There's a question. Why would God include this dirt in this holy book? And not only that, why in the world would God in the same book call David a man after his own heart? Why did Jesus, it was prophesied, sit on the throne of David? He's the biggie. Moses and Abraham and David. What's with that? As I was studying this psalm, I was reminded of a comment from Roland Rogekeiser in, uh, in his book, A Holy Longing. Listen to this. This is very wise. To be connected with the church is to be associated with scoundrels, warmongers, fakes, child molesters, murderers, adulterers, and hypocrites of every description. It also, at the same time, identifies you with the saints and the finest persons of heroic soul within every time, country, race, and gender. To be a member of the church is to carry a mantle of both the worst sin 
and the finest heroism of soul because the church always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. The question lingers. I mean, this whole thing started with a con game. One of our forefathers lied about his wife and said that she was his sister so she could sleep with the king. <laughs> then you got David Jeremiah, who was a weenie. He's called the weeping prophet. That's not because he had a burden for souls, because he was scared spitless. When you move into the New Testament, it doesn't get a lot better. When Paul said it is a saying worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and I am, not was, I am the chief of sinners. And Peter, years after the crucifixion and resurrection, is called in Scripture a hypocrite. And I could go on and on and on. What's going on? What looks to me, God, in a time when we need heroes and obedient and pure people as our models, you keep doing this in your word. What are you doing? Let me tell you what he's doing. He's loving you. Do you have books about famous Christians in your library? Do they tell you the dark side? If they don't burn them, if they don't tell you about Spurgeon and his months of depression so he couldn't preach, if they don't tell you about Wesley's bad marriage when his wife chased him down the street with a lamp holder, if they don't tell you about the down and the dark and the sin, then they're of no good. They'll discourage you. God knew that. Don't paint whole halos over Rachel. Don't paint halos over David or Paul or Peter or James. They're just like you, great sinners in need of a great Savior. Don't forget that. And then there's one other thing that we ought to look at before we dig down. Sounds like we're going to be here all morning, but we're not. What I'm going to tell you is fairly simple. If you get it, it'll change your life. But the second side road is this, and it's in the fourth verse when David says something that is quite puzzling. He, he says this, against thee, and thee only have I sinned. What's with that? What about Uriah? You killed him. What about Bathsheba? What about the people of God you betrayed? What about the witness that you heard against God and God only you have sinned? You sinned against a whole lot of other people. David, though, knew that they were sinners too, and that only one was holy.
and he was the one who wrote the law and gave it to his people as his gift. The Constitution was his. The Word was his. The truth was his. And he was, it wasn't Uriah. That's bad. He needed to ask forgiveness. Well, he couldn't. He was dead. Bathsheba, the people of God, and he does in this song. But he knows there's somebody a whole lot bigger than them. God is holy. And if you've never stood before God and been afraid, you've been worshiping an idol. And this psalm says, if you've never stood before God and been loved when you didn't deserve it, you've been worshiping an idol too. All right. The late Jerry Bridges was a good friend of mine, and I loved him, and I miss him a lot. At the beginning of his career, and he was a well-known, best-selling author, he wrote books on holiness and a beauty and obedience and purity. And then about later in his life, it happens to all of us when you're cramming for finals. Toward the end of his life, he began to write books on grace and radical grace. He sent me a note one time, and I still have it written in pencil. Dear Steve, are you sure that we're right? <laughs> one time we were teaching at a conference together, and uh, I introduced him, and I said he was one of the few people in the world that I didn't understand why he taught grace because he didn't need it. He was the kindest, most gentle, most obedient, most holy guy I'd ever met. And when he got up to speak, he said, I appreciate what Steve said, but he's a fruitcake. There's something wrong with him. And then he stopped and he said, let me tell you what happened this morning. And I said, good, I'm gonna get some dirt on Jerry Bridges. And he said, I was at the airport when we came in and uh, they, they, were late getting my suitcase to me. And I was angry. And I went, that's it? <laughs> I go back to my former statement, you're the only person I know that does it. But his sins were deep like yours. And if your sins are deep, I've got some good news for you. And it's from this Psalm and it's so good it's new and it's old and it's a reminder. And if you remember it every day, it will change your life with one provision. You better know who you are. If you are self-righteous, this isn't gonna work. If you are arrogant and prideful about how far you've come and how much you've done, then this isn't for you. If you, if you really think if you could quit smoking, you would be perfect or cussing or yelling at your wife or husband, 
you would be perfect. And none of this that follows is for you, and you have my permission to fall asleep. But if you know who you are, that means everybody here has a secret that is devastating. And nobody knows but you. And if you know that, I'm here to help. Then the second thing you have to know is who God is. Since we're in the Psalms, let me read to you from the 103rd Psalm. You, unless you're a Baptist, you won't get to it before I finish it. So just listen and trust me. Where the psalmist says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. I read that and almost speak in tongues. That's so exciting, and we've heard it so much, we don't think about it. If you know who you are, and if you know who God is, not the lies that people tell you, then you don't have any trouble owning your sin. I was speaking at the General Assembly of our denomination one time, said some controversial things, and this young man in a three-piece suit came up and uh, had a very young, had a very sour look on his face. And he said, Dr. Brown, what you said this morning breaks my heart. And I said, son, we're part of the smallest denomination in America and we're in Birmingham, Alabama. There's nothing big enough here to break your heart. And he said, you, you don't want to hear what a fellow elder has to say? And I said, mm, no. <laughs> but if you'll be honest, I'll listen. And then he exploded. He said, you are arrogant. You are prideful. You are rude. And I said, bingo. And he was surprised. Before the hour was over, we went out on the porch of that big brick church and sat down and talked. And it was probably the most honest conversation he ever had because I knew who I was and I'm willing to own it. That's not because I'm so wise or pure. It's because I don't have stupid written across my forehead. You know what would be really cool? If, I'm going to get in trouble for this. If, if Donald Trump would maybe on his account, his social media account, or maybe standing in one of his rallies, say this, I really screwed some things up. Man, I heard a bunch of people. I can't believe that I said and did some of the things that I said and did. I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> I'm going to try to do better from now on. Or what if Biden got up 
and said, it's me, it's not my brother and sister. I screwed up the economy. That's why we have inflation. The reason you can't afford to drive your car is my fault. And I've said some really, really dumb things. If you could just forgive me, I'm going to try to do better. Now, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so it's up to us who are Christians to teach them how. Not only can we own our own sin, it's not hard to confess when you know who you are. God's not surprised, and I'm not either. I know, and I love living in that place without the mask and the armor and the pretense. But you can also rejoice in your forgiveness. What does David said? Restore the joy of my salvation. And then he talks about laughing and singing. What's with that? He's forgiven. That's what. He is forgiven. <laughs> I almost like to sin. Now, don't misquote me or misunderstand me. I know it's destruction. I know what it's done to people I love and me and all. But sometimes I think if I'd never sinned, I would have never known his love. Because you can't love until you've been loved. And love in response to goodness is not love. It's reward. So, when you've screwed it up, run to him. It'll be hard, but he'll hug you, and he will do it every time. Listen uh, to what he says uh, at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. A sour Christian is an oxymoron. You know why? Because, because we're forgiven. Yes, that. Oh, yeah, what you were just thinking. Yes, that. was looking at their names. Kenny Rogers and Mac Davis. You remember that country song when they say it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way? <laughs> they had both recently had become stars and they were getting all the accolades and it was a tongue-in-cheek statement. And I love that song. It's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. It's hard for Christians to be humble. I'm called arrogant in a lot of places, and I try my best not to be. I don't have anything to be arrogant about, except I'm right. <laughs> except I'm loved no matter what. Except I'm forgiven for everything. Except I'm going to live forever. 
except God likes me more than he likes you. Humility is a problem for a Christian because of what David discovered. He had screwed it up royally, and he was forgiven. And the joy that smelled like arrogance poured forth from his voice. Then there's one other thing, Lord. And we're through. Not only can you own your sin and rejoice in your forgiveness, you can use your experience. David says, and my mouth will show forth your praise. And I'm going to tell everybody about what you do. I think if I hear one more time from anybody, don't sin, you'll hurt your witness. I'm going to scream and cuss and spit. You don't hurt your witness by being a sinner. Your being a sinner is your witness. When David says he's going to tell people, what do you think he's going to talk about? You're right. Bathsheba, Uriah, Nathan's words, his embarrassment how horrible he feels and how good and gracious and wonderful Jesus is. He would say God, but now he knows Jesus too. There's another Psalm of sorts. It's written by a man by the name of Coist, who was a French priest and it was written a number of years ago. He wrote, he wrote a book called Prayers and it was written in French and translated years later into English. And it's uh, so profound and so wise that it'll blow you away. And so let's look at Quoist's psalm as well as David's psalm. In a different way, they're both from God. In this prayer, just like David, Coist had sinned, and this is what he prayed. I have fallen, Lord. Once more, I can't go on. I'll never succeed. I'm ashamed. I don't dare look at you, and yet I struggle, Lord, for I knew you were right near me, bending over and watching. But temptation blew like a hurricane, and instead of looking at you, I turned my head away. I stepped aside while you stood silent and sorrowful like the spurned fiance who sees his loved one carried away by the enemy. When the wind died down as suddenly as it had risen, when the lightning ceased, after proudly streaking the darkness, all of a sudden I found myself alone, ashamed, disgusted with my sin in my hands. This sin that I selected the way a customer makes his purchase, this sin that I've paid for and can't return 
for the storekeeper is no longer there. This tasteless sin, this odorless sin, this sin that sickens me that I have wanted but want no more, that I have imagined and sought and played with, fondled for a long time, that I have finally embraced while turning coldly away from you. My arms outstretched, my eyes and heart irresistibly drawn, this sin that I have grasped and consumed with gluttony. It's mine now, but it possesses me as the spider web holds captive the net. It's mine. It sticks to me. It flows in my veins. It fills my heart. It is slipped in everywhere as darkness slips into the forest at dusk and fills the patches of light. I can't get rid of it. I run from it the way runs, one runs from a stray dog, but it catches up with me and bounds joyfully against my legs. Everyone must notice it. I'm so ashamed that I feel like crawling to avoid being seen. I'm ashamed of being seen by my friends I'm ashamed of being seen by you, Lord, for you love me and I forgot you. I forgot you because I was thinking of myself and one can't think of several persons at the same time. One must choose and I chose. And your voice, your look, your love hurt me. They weigh me down more than my sin. Lord, don't look at me like that. I'm naked. I'm dirty. I'm down. I'm shattered with no strength left. I can make no more promises. I can only lie here before you. And then the answer to Christ. Come, child, look up. Isn't it mainly your vanity that is wounded? Do you think there's a limit to my love? Do you think that for a moment I stop loving you, but you still rely only on yourself? So get up, get moving. It's not falling in the mud that's the worst. It's staying there. My late best friend, Rusty Anderson, was playing with his granddaughter, and she did something bad. He said, honey, don't do that. She said, I'm sorry, granddaddy. And five minutes later, she was doing it again. And he said, honey, don't do that. And she said, I'm sorry, granddaddy. Then five minutes later, she did it again. And she said, I'm sorry, granddaddy. And Rusty said, honey, sorry is not enough. And then Rusty said he heard Jesus say, funny, it was enough for me. It is. And if you listen to what I taught you, you know that. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if this message encouraged or challenged you, hope you'll share it with a friend. And by the way, make sure you visit us at keylife.org.